Well, last week we covered the introduction of 1 Samuel. We saw how Hannah, a barren woman, was given a child in answer to her prayers and pleadings before the Lord. Faithful to look to Him year after year, putting up with all kinds of heartache and, uh, and drama in the home. And I was just struck once again, how, how amazing is it that our God would write such an epic transition from judges to kings and begin the story with a barren woman who lives in, in a very small place and, and would, would be otherwise overlooked and insignificant. But God, that's where he says, this is where the story begins. This is where I am going to bring about a massive change for my people. And so we're going to study Hannah's song today. And I just want to say a few words at the beginning about singing and praise. There is a, a very prominent place in the Christian life for poetry and song. It's, it's interesting because God is so glorious. And when we experience him, when we get glimpses of his glory, it's not enough to just be like, yep, that, that's it. It's there. No. When we see something glorious, we have been wired for worship, my friends. That's why it's good to sing a new song to the Lord, to praise Him with the instruments, right? To join together in the congregation and sing loudly at the top of our lungs His praise. Why? Because He's worthy. He's worthy. C.S. Lewis said it this way, our praise not merely expresses our joy, but completes our joy. So know this, church, one of the reasons we gather week after week is because we, how could we not, right? We have seen him, we have tasted of his faithfulness, we have watched him work answering prayers, and we got to come in and testify and sing. And as we do, our joy is made full. We share in the joys of others. We walk with them through the trials and in the triumphs. We sing like with Hannah we will today. We will see her joy made much of and made full in this expression of praise. In fact, you can track through the scriptures and you see over and over these expressions, these crescendos of worship and glory. It's interesting how connected they are. I didn't realize how connected these prayers of praise are. Hannah draws upon the song of Moses, as they were delivered, the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. And Moses steps back and he leads, as it were, the congregation of Israel in a song of victory and triumph. Look at what he's done. Look at how he's delivered us. The horse and rider, they, they were vanquished. And so song, the song of Hannah is a prayer of praise, drawing upon that. And then What's cool about the book of Samuel is it begins in chapter 2 with kind of a bookend of poetry and praise, and it finishes in 2 Samuel 22 and 23 with King David giving praise to God in poetic form, in song form. So the whole book of historical narrative, it's not enough just to know history. We are called to worship the God who wrote it and see his glory and, and be in awe of him. And so the songs of David, man, what, a, what, what an amazing man who was, had a heart after the Lord and was stirred to sing his praise. We're going to see more of David's story as we move through 1 Samuel and then into 2 Samuel especially. And then there's the Magnificat. 
right? Mary's song of praise that we read in the New Testament, early in the Gospels. She plays off of the words of Hannah. Isn't that cool how connected these are? Singing to the same God who is worthy of praise. And friends, so do we. So do we. These words are given to us as a gift that we might leverage them in our hearts to find a deeper joy in God. And so let's look this morning at this prayer of praise, this triumph written in poetic form to be sung throughout the ages, and we'll enter in and see how spectacular these words are. We'll begin in verses 1 and 2 with what I'm calling a triumphant exultation, not exaltation, but exultation, a triumphant exultation. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, verse 1, spectacular introduction to this this song. You know, I was struck by this too. How many of our songs are prayers? Have you noticed this? Most often when we're singing, we're praying. We're just putting it to music and singing it together, praying it as one with one voice. This is her prayer that overflows from a heart locked in on the goodness and glory of God. To exult means to express triumphant elation. Key word there is triumphant. There is victory to be made note of and entered into in triumph. It's a song of triumph. We exult in our God. And it's a call then for all those around to join in, in his praise. And then she says this, my horn is exalted. And I just realized the ESV has been updated a number of times. Um, it used to say strength. My, my original ESV from, I think, 2009 says strength, but they changed it back to horn, and I'm glad. It's right. It's just foreign for us. We don't, we don't use this kind of language. This is a, 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 an animal kind of imagery that's in view. And the animal with the greatest strength had, as it were, the, the strongest, highest horn. And so it's as if she's saying in this metaphorical language, my strength was low and I was down. And you're the lifter of my head. You have lifted my strength high in the air. You've shown yourself as you've strengthened me. My horn is exalted in the Lord. You'll see this language throughout the Psalms as well. And then she says this, my mouth derides, most literally is opened wide over my enemies. Why? Well, because I'm rejoicing in your salvation. Why is her mouth open? Well, you got to catch this. The word deride has all these connotations that that bring us to this, this Hannah who is just like, hey, Penina, Check it out now. Who's got the upper hand now? Like she's, is she just downing on her rival? I don't think so. I think this open wide is a song of praise to God. And she is unashamed to praise the God who has come through for her. I like how Richard Phillips said it. He said, given Hannah's refusal previously to complain about Penina or seek God's vengeance... It's unlikely that Hannah has suddenly turned bitter or hateful. Rather, thinking theologically, as she does throughout all of this prayer, and watch for this as we move, Hannah sees Penina as an example of the enemies of God and his people. 
Hannah now gloats or boasts in the Lord to see the voice of the unbelieving mockery silenced because of God's saving grace. This happens over and over. My soul make its boast in who? Well, the world says in me. We're going to see this a lot today, right? At least I'm hoping on the 49ers side we'll see this a lot today. Okay, no, 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 don't get distracted. Don't check your phone. It's not happening yet, okay? Now all the Seahawks fans are like, what? He's rooting for the Niners? We, we boast in the Lord, not in ourselves, not over others as if somehow we are better or more. No, it's grace. Look at what he's done. And her mouth is open wide, but to the heavens to praise the God who has brought her from out of her, 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 just the weight that she was under in those circumstances. It's interesting to see how this, this turn of events is, is almost used by the Lord to kind of speak of a larger reality. I mentioned this last week. Israel was in, as it were, kind of a, a barren place spiritually. It was bleak. There was not life. It was compromised. And, and now there's a glimmer of hope. It's as if the Lord is saying, I'm doing something new. It's time to change this cycle that just keeps showing your need. Now I'm going to provide. And I'm going to start by bringing a barren woman a son. And she is, has vowed to give him to the service of the Lord all the days of his life. And how significant Samuel will turn out to be in the history of redemption. Now, verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Why do we love that language? What, what is it about that imagery that just delights our heart? Friends, we live in a day of absolute imbalance, shifting, change, everywhere we look, even when we look in the mirror or at our own families, there's constant change. What is the same? What is certain and true and unchanging? Where do we plant our feet in this world? In the Lord. Hmm. When we speak about the holiness of God, there's two ways to remember this. He is both holy other and holy pure. The holiness of God is captured in both of these. When she says this, there is no one holy like that. There's none besides you. That means he's holy. He is set apart. He is the creator. All else is creation. There is but one God, one God, the great I am. There is no one else. He is holy other than all that he has made and that all that exists. And he is holy pure. There is no shadow in God. There's no turning in Him. There's nothing deceitful or dark or, or lacking. There's no deficiency. What's amazing about this is this is who He always has been and who He always will be. That which He creates echoes Him. It doesn't change Him. It displays Him and it gives Him opportunity to display Himself. We see that both in the glories of heaven and the fires of hell. This is his goal in all that he's made, to reveal his holiness, which we see and we say glory, glory. 
King David says these words. These are some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. In fact, for a while, one of my passwords was 2SAM22. Don't try it. <laughs> the Lord is my rock. Yes. Look, look at the imagery, the, the, the calls here. Picture this. He is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock. Here it comes again. In whom I take refuge. So when Hannah says these words, all of this is in view. I think David, King David, is pulling out of her prayer here as he exalts in the Lord himself as he's been delivered from Saul. He is the one where I find refuge. He is my shield and the horn. There it is. The strength of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. All of these are true, my friend, for you today as you walk with him, as you trust in Christ. He is all of these things for us. Where do we look? Where do we run? We run to the rock who is sure and certain. We even sing songs like this. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. I remember the Sunday where we had a typo in a planning center and it said all other ground is stinking sand. <laughs> and we ran back there mid-song like, get, get the tea out of there. But that's also true. All other ground is sinking sand. Where are you going to stand in this world? If you're here and you are not trusting Jesus, you stand on sinking sand. It's quicksand. Any moment, the ground beneath your feet can give way. And where are you going to look? Run to the rock. Go to him. He is certain and true. And so many in this room can attest to that time and time and time again. Now we move into a fundamental reality. I was just shocked to, to kind of see this as I studied this week. A fundamental reality. This is a basic worldview. This is a very theologically astute young lady. As she speaks these words of, of praise to God, listen to the truth. L notice the lenses through which she sees the world. It's a fundamental reality as she sings the praise of God. Verse 3, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Oh, this verse. This, this verse is so good, so true, so packed full of truth. The Lord is a God of knowledge. Hmm. The omniscience of God is how we often refer to this theologically. He's omniscient. He is the God who knows all things. And I would add, that is both actual and possible. He knows them all in one simple and eternal act. Why does he know them? What's the basis of his knowledge of all things? Not learning, not looking, not discovering, ordaining. That's why he knows. Why would you know how the book ends? Well, you would know if you wrote the book, wouldn't you? God writes history. He writes it in full, and therefore he knows it. He knows all things. And know this, God has never learned, not one single time. He has never discovered something and been like, oh, wow, I did not know that. He doesn't learn. He knows all. 
His knowledge is perfect, and it's always been perfect, both actual and possible, which is why his wisdom is also perfect. His wisdom is how he chooses the best ends, what he wants to accomplish in his sovereign and all-wise purpose, and the best way to get there, the means to those ends, is ordained of God and written as well. So know this, friend, nothing this week will meet your life where God is like, whoa, did not expect that. What are we going to do? No, he's way ahead of it. The God of all knowledge. This has implications, though, doesn't it? Look at how she connects these. By him, actions are weighed. Why? Because actions come from where? The heart. And what we feel is informed by what we believe, right? So thoughts, beliefs lead to feelings and affections, and that is expressed in action. And the Lord knows all of those. Every single piece of the equation. He knows everything. Hmm. Which means we are totally accountable. It's, it's total accountability. There is no one anywhere who has ever lived or even existed who is in any way not accountable to God. He is also perfect in his judgment. He never gets it wrong. He's never going to be like, here's the deal. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you this sentence. And then someone's like, yeah, but you failed to account for this. And he's like, whoops, <laughs> sorry, I missed it. No, that, that's never happened, never will. His justice is applied. His judgment is given in perfection. This is our God. You see why he is to be feared. The one who trembles at his word. Verses 4 and 5, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Oh, this is, these are anticipatory words as the story unfolds. We're going to see in just a couple chapters how the Philistines are going to come in force and a devastating defeat is dealt. But know this, the bows of the mighty, the armies as it were, they are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased from hunger. So God can reverse things. He can take those in positions of great wealth and power and absolutely strip it away. We saw this in Daniel, didn't we? Again and again. He takes kings and, and makes them, and he breaks them at his will, according to his plan. The barren has borne seven. The word seven there is a, a number of completion. She has borne the number God has ordained for her. But she who has many children is forlorn. Don't think just because you've had a child born that that child is a guarantee. No, we don't have any guarantees in this world. There is a God who has sovereignty over life and death. He gives and he takes away. And we bless him in both cases. What situation can God not completely change? Say it possibly. Positively, God can change any situation. No one is, is, is above his reach. No one can say, well, he can't touch me. No one has so much power that they are invincible before the sovereign one. And no one is too low or broken or needy that he cannot make them raise up in strength. Hear the heart of Hannah 
as she sings. We have a God infinite in power, perfect in righteousness, and tender in compassion. What glory we see. What glory. Now, if God just had power and he was like, rich guy, I'm going to break you. And poor guy, I'm going to raise you up. Well, without righteousness, that is tyranny, isn't it? That's, that's anarchy. There must be a standard by which things are weighed and judged. Well, that standard is God. It's God. Truth and right and wrong. He establishes what is up from down. And when he moves in power, he moves in righteousness. And when he moves in compassion, he moves in righteousness. Hmm. The Lord kills and brings to life. You just would encourage you to underline that in your Bible. Note that. The Lord kills. We, we, need, to, we need to hear that in our day. There's so much encouragement and talk about the love of God. And yes, it's so wonderful and true. But he also is the one who kills. He The Lord kills. You say it this way. No one dies apart from the hand of God. Death is not just neutral. It's not just natural. We talk about it in natural causes. There is no death that is apart from the hand of God. He is sovereign over life and sovereign over death. He brings down to Sheol, Hannah says, and raises up. This is mind-blowing to hear so early in the Old Testament. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor up from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. That would be the garbage dump where all the garbage would be burning and they'd be crawling over piles of of garbage and refuse. He can go there and bring those to sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. What can he not do? That would be a good question. What is it that our God cannot do? He cannot deny himself. He must be true to who he is, and he always is. Hmm. He's sovereign over life and death. He has the power to raise the dead. Now, this is, I think, prophetic anticipation. As Hannah writes these words under the leading of the Holy Spirit, she is glorifying the God who is sovereign over even Sheol. And when the Old Testament says these words, it's a place of the dead. Now, Sheol has different places. There's a Hades part of Sheol where you go and you are suffering under righteous judgment of God. Those unsaved who died apart from faith in the Messiah go to Sheol. But the righteous also go to Sheol. They go to what is referred to often as Abraham's bosom or paradise, as Jesus said to the thief on the cross. It is a place of great blessing and joy and peace and satisfaction. It's not soul sleep. It's not numbness and patience. No, it is vivid life today. This anticipates the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I believe. Who who can go down to Sheol and be raised up again? God can do that. Jesus showed this multiple times and then in his own life accomplished it for our victory and triumph. Wealth and pride, poverty and position, none of these are out of God's reach. In fact, no one has wealth apart from the hand of God. Even those who are unsaved and walking in evil, his common grace is is 
pleased to patiently endure or bear with such that great wealth can be made by someone who would walk in evil ways. And we see that every day, don't we? The movers and shakers of our world tend not to be the righteous. But every penny they have is vulnerable. Know this. Be reminded of this, Christian. It's true for us too. We hold all that we have with open hands. What we have is from God. And it's for Him. He gives it that we might leverage it for His glory. And so we we dare not wander into pride, but walk in humility, dependent upon Him. When He blesses, glorifying Him, saying, thank you. You deserve all glory and praise. For those who are in poverty, there is hope. And it's not a government handout program. His name is Jesus. He is the hope of the poor. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. The the reality is, is that there are people in places of need and desperation, and what do they need most? Always keep this at the forefront of your minds, friends. They need Jesus. They need the gospel. So when we move in compassion and help and meet needs, go there first. Help with the needs, yeah? And point to Jesus. There is no position but that has been appointed by God. We saw this in Romans 13, right? All those in high positions, they're there by whom? By God. Mark's here. Mark Strimmer won the election. Praise the Lord. By whose hand? God. Put him in a position to influence and shine and, and leverage that position for God's glory. Let's pray for our brother. Let's pray for him. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Yes, this is, it's like she pulls back to the largest conceivable thing. She's like, listen, even the earth, he is the one who was sovereign. Now, let me just, up until more recently, I had just never even heard of this. But let me just say bluntly and lovingly, can can I just say, the earth is not flat, okay? Uh, shocker, the earth is not flat. This verse does not teach that the earth is sitting flatly on pillars. Okay? The earth is exactly the shape that God has made. It is round. It's a sphere. It's beautiful. And if you've traveled for any distance, you, you kind of instinctually know this. But there's a lot of conspiracy theorists who are buying into all kinds of craziness, and sometimes they use verses like this. And friends, that's just simply not what that means. This is poetic language speaking of the sovereign hand of God to uphold all things by the word of his power, the language of Colossians 2. The pillars of the earth, the four corners of the earth, right? Stretching out like a curtain. These are poetic words speaking of our glorious God. They reveal... His absolute sovereignty over all of creation. The heavens declare whose glory? God's glory. He holds them all. Billy is the earth around. You've you've traveled a long ways, my brother. And the longer you fly, you're, you're like, okay, it's definitely not flat. Okay. Let's just put that one to rest and not follow foolishness. The joys of a biblical worldview. Oh, friends, this is, 
This is so important. Think of what Hannah is doing like these glasses. Wow, you guys are blurry. (laughs) These lenses sharpen our reality. So too, a biblical worldview will give joy even in the midst of challenging circumstances. It will stir in you a greater appreciation for the hand of God at work in your life. Work to understand the scriptures so that you might have lenses to interpret the world rightly. We all need to work at this. A biblical worldview. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the whole story of God in four words. God is the creator. Man, the sinner. God, the savior through his son, Jesus Christ. And one day, he will make it all new. And sin will be vanquished forever. We know these things are true. And so we stand on solid ground. Now, a reassured confidence. I saw this as I was in the last few verses here. I, I just was struck. Remember now what Hannah is doing. She, she has weaned Samuel. He is probably three or four, something like that. And she's brought him to the temple. She has, she has lent him, dedicated him to the Lord. And she's about to leave. Okay? The... the You feeling the heartstrings tugging, moms? You're going to leave your four-year-old son, your only child at this point. I'm pretty sure about that. She had children after this. But she is leaving her only son with the likes of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. What do you do in a moment like that? You put on the lenses of a biblical worldview. Listen to these words ring out. He, he, the Lord of hosts, will guard the feet of his faithful ones. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, and this anticipates what is coming very soon in the lives of the corrupt there at the tabernacle. For not by might shall man prevail. What a beautiful line. Not by might, not by human strength or cunning, not by might shall a man prevail. Hmm. Think of David and Goliath. These words introduce us to this most epic of histories as God is writing this story. Why David and Goliath? Because God wrote the story. The overlooked shepherd, right, who puts the armor on, doesn't even fit. He's like, I can't even move with this. Forget this. All I need is five smooth stones. And really all he needed was one, right? And he goes out there against the greatest strength. And these words ring true. Not by might shall a man prevail. And the little shepherd boy slays the most intimidating soldier on the battlefield. Hmm. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. True. Absolutely true. When will it happen? Well, we don't always know. We don't always know. In fact, for hundreds of years, there's been a whole lot of enemies happening, and the Philistines are just around the corner. They're coming. And defeat is looming. But know this. If not now, one day, they will be broken. All of them. 
I've said it before, let me say it again. No one who goes to war with God wins. No one who takes on God wins, ever. Never going to happen. So if you're here today and you are running against him and you know it, and he's weighing on your heart and he's tugging on you and convicting you of your sins, bow your knee before him. Stop your rebellion. Turn in repentance and run to him and say, save me. Save me from myself and my sins. Because the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. He will thunder against them in heaven. And then verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And all of a sudden we're like, wait, what? Who? He's going to give strength to his king? What are you talking about, Hannah? And then she goes on, and exalt the horn or the strength, that is, of his anointed. Who are we talking about? Friends, this is wonderfully prophetic language. Not only does it have prophetic anticipation in the pages of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it points us to the king and the anointed one. The word anointed is Messiah, Mashiach, in the Hebrew. If you translate that uh, over into the, the Greek, that's where we get the word Christ. Christ. This is a gift from the Holy Spirit in the prayer of Hannah that anticipates our Savior. Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament moments, that's a special gift. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. They departed. They, they, they left. And there he was. How do you get to that place? By looking up. And having a worldview that says, you can keep him. You can keep his feet. Oh, Lord, make him faithful. Hold him. Protect him. Keep him away from these losers over here. These corrupt, horrible men who are doing horrific things. We're going to see the very next few verses next week of what's taking place. As they leave, this is just at a, a climax of, of depravity and evil. They go home points us back to this. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. And we can add from the New Testament that we know that the reason we are faithful is because he holds us. Right? We cling to him as his hands hold our hands upon him. His chosen ones. His faithful ones. Those who seek to walk in righteousness and walk in the fear of the Lord. So our response this morning, thinking about the flow of these things, not by might shall man prevail. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're in an election year. Is that right? There it is. Not by might shall man prevail. Who are we looking to? as we go into a cycle of most likely some upheaval. We are looking to the Lord. By the way, he's already written the story. He's sovereign. He's sovereign in all places. He's certainly sovereign in elections like this. He's at work. He's doing things right now. But then pull out a little bit. When all is said and done, it will not be the most powerful. 
who win at the end. It will not be the most wealthy, the movers and shakers. It won't even be the most famous who make the Super Bowl appearances today. It won't be the most innovative, the most technological advancing people. Like you think of Elon Musk. That's impressive, but, but that's not the winner at the end of the day. It won't be the most talented or even the one who has the most Super Bowl rings, given that it's Super Bowl Sunday. Who will it be at the end of the day? The faithful ones. Does that equip a worldview, my friends, today? Does that not call us to a faith, to a greater dependence and delight in our God? Cling to Him. Friends, you don't have to be, pretend to be strong Right? He delights to show his strength when we are weak, when we're broken, when we cry out to him. The faithful ones, just persevere in your faith. Hold on to him and watch him work. Prayer and praise. I was thinking about this. You know, we, 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 often we call it prayer request time, but we should make sure we add praise as well, Right? Maybe we should call it prayer and praise time. Prayer and praise time. How often do we forget to circle back around and praise God for answers? We did this just last week at our Bible study. We were praying for Kurt and had a very specific request. We prayed, oh, it's so cool how the Lord answered our prayers. And we delighted together, just at our little table, in God. We praised Him for answering our prayers. Friends, part of the Christian life is noticing when God answers and exulting in Him, even in the small things, and definitely in moments like this. Take your cue from Hannah. What song are you singing today? What song can you exult in God today? There's something greater to sing about today than Taylor Swift making it to the Super Bowl, right? There is something far more satisfying. There is joy awaiting you and it won't be made full until you express it. Do so today for His glory and for your joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for being so glorious. Thank You that You are indeed the greatest good, the the most valuable treasure we could ever find. Lord, forgive us when we are lost in little joys and chasing after the wind, things that will not ultimately satisfy. Oh, Lord, tune our hearts to sing your praise. Show us your glory. Call us out of ourselves to see you as the most glorious, the most worthy. Stir us in that place then to to walk in obedience, to, to treasure holiness, to run after you because you alone can satisfy. And Lord, we thank you. Thank you for all of the ways that you work. We give praise to you as we sing together now. In Jesus' name, amen.